y'all a moment before. Good morning. Good morning. Carlos, you child. Oh, man. Children, you may be dismissed to CPK. Uh, everyone else, are you ready to study your Bibles this morning? All right, man, y'all, y'all, y'all better keep that energy. Go ahead and turn to Malachi chapter 1. Our time this morning could absolutely be titled last, but certainly not least. Uh, as Malachi, if you're looking for it, is the last book in the Old Testament. Uh, so if you're digging around and see the Gospels, you've gone too far. But as you get there, I want to frame up our time. For the last 11 weeks, we have studied the words and the lives of the minor prophets, men who were the mouthpieces of God, instruments of mercy to his people. But also what we have seen in these books is how God deals with us. How he calls us to a way of living that demands he be the center of, and therein we find the problem. Israel, like ourselves, long to be the center. So continually, we pull away, we drift from God as we slowly but surely seek our own glory. And each minor prophet calls us to move actively towards God, to return to the fullness of who he is, to return to his word, to return to confidence in his attributes, to return to safety and family, to return to surrender and submission. Malachi is no different. The statement rings true on another level, last but not least, as this book, so far as we know, Uh, carries within it the last recorded words of God spoken to Israel for the next 400 years. Imagine that, family. For centuries before this, we've read about it. God would often and regularly speak to his people. And then, bam, in a moment, silence for generations to come. It would be as if God spoke to you, he spoke to your parents, he spoke to your grandparents and their grandparents and their grandparents and their grandparents and on and on and on. There's this regular understanding that God speaks and then all of a sudden he does not speak to your children, does not speak to their children, does not speak to their children's children and their children's children. In that moment, what would God say? What would he have to give that would be so important for Israel that then he would go quiet? Malachi, the book, is written as a conversation. It's more like an argument between God and Israel. There are six discourses or arguments back and forth before a final warning is given in chapter 4. Malachi argues that Israel claims to be God's people, and yet they are not living a life reflecting such. 
What Malachi argues is that Israel's faith is actually waning, but the language is stronger. Malachi suggests that there is no faith spectrum. Israel is actually living like God doesn't exist at all. Malachi puts the life of the Israelites under a microscope, and uh, the six arguments laid out in this book, I want to draw you to three points that we'll see in chapter one, three solutions that God through Malachi, lays out that pleads for Israel to return to him. Malachi is going to argue on the basis of God's love. He's going to argue on the basis of God's honor. And finally, he's going to argue on the basis of God's power. Malachi argues that these things will set Israel right and prepare them for a coming day when Elijah will return. And so I want to tag our time in this text, return and look forward, return and look forward. Three points, love, honor, and power, and then I'll be in my seat. If you are able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? We got a bit of reading. And then would you join me in prayer to pray for me as I pray for you so as together we hear from the Lord. Malachi chapter 1, starting in verse 1. And it reads, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? It's not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? Oh, priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. And such a gift from your hand will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there might be one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered in my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, but you profane it. When you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, the food, may be despised. But you say, 
What a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring is your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Join me in prayer. God, I am reminded in this moment of the lyrics of that popular hymn, Every Hour I Need Thee. And that is true this hour, this moment. We need you. We need you to speak to us through this text. We need you to carry us through this text. Show us in this letter of love all that you have for us. And may we see your son mighty in it. Father, would you give me as the preacher with clarity of speech and thought, and would you give the congregation attentiveness and grace for my errors in Christ Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. took a mint before I got up here and that was not a good idea because my mouth is dry. I'm so sorry. Our dog at home, uh, she, she's an experience. Uh, as some of you know who come to our Bible study on Friday nights, she's a very playful, uh, very sweet pup. Uh, and one of her favorite games is tug of war. She will search the house uh, for something to keep the game going, something to hold enough tension to keep the game uh, going for a while, and then she'll just nag you with it until you cave. Uh, but I love this game. I love it because I get to exercise my dominance and my rightful place as alpha, which goes to show you how fragile my ego truly is. <laughs> but there's times when Piper, that's our dog, she, she wants to play the tension game and my heart's just not in it. And so uh, what ends up happening is she'll, she'll bring me the, you know, toy and uh, I kind of just hold it, but I'm not really pulling. I'm not really fighting. I'm not really matching her same level of effort or tension. And you can feel the missed expression on her, like, or the missed expectation on her. Like, this, this is not what I thought you were going to do, bro. And therein lies the truth I think all of us could relate to. You and I are living, playing a similar game, tension game, between what we say we believe and how we live. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know which one of those two we're being half-hearted with. We know which of the two we're not matching the same youthful vigor and intensity, but but we don't like that. Let me give you an example. Y'all look sleepy still. I say all the time how I want to be healthy and how I, I need to diet and exercise. And I know all the secrets and all of the apps I bought. And I bought a rower, which I used last night because I was convicted for using this illustration. <laughs> <laughs> But then you could find me somewhere between the hours of 11 p.m. and 1 a.m. perusing my kitchen for something salty to eat before I go to bed when I should be sleeping. I didn't get this physique by making wise decisions. So don't do, do as I say, not as I do. 
But this is the tension I'm talking about. There's what we say we believe, and then there's how we live. We say we love the church, but we come late all the time, or we don't come at all. We say we're generous, but we don't live sacrificially just comfortably or not at all. We say we want to serve, but we don't want to do anything that requires time, energy, or children. So not at all. We say we want to serve the city, love our neighbors, but our screen time on our phones would say otherwise. We say we're not political, but we scoff at people who don't vote like us. This is exactly the tension, the wrestle with Israel at this time. Allow allow me to build my case. Malachi, whose name means my messenger, is not like Jonah, who's a bit of a lazy preacher. Malachi is a power puncher. And the phrase, don't shoot the messenger, I think is sort of applicable to Malachi. You, you, you know the saying, you, you say it after you've laid some hard news on someone who needed a truth telling, right? You say something like, don't shoot the messenger, right? You say something difficult, you try to say that to, to sort of buy yourself some time. But this is what Malachi does. He gives news, unfavorable honesty to those living a lie. And I think it applicable because the words Malachi delivers to the Israelites, and by extension us here this morning, are tough words. They're direct and straightforward words. Well, why would Israel need to hear such a thing anyway? Stay with me. The year is about 450 B.C. The Jews had returned to Israel from their Babylonian captivity and began what they hoped was a great reconstruction era. You can read in Ezra and Nehemiah, those are overlapping books, you can't read one without the other, to get more of the details, but basically the people of Israel were allowed to return home to rebuild, but they were not totally free. The Medo-Persian Empire still ruled over them, but Israel longed for a different political climate. They were neither independent nor had a Davidic king to rule over them. They were longing for the days of visible spiritual activity like in Elijah's days and Isaiah's days. They were longing for the temple's spiritual significance like it was in Solomon's day. They, They wanted the prosperity and prestige they had during Saul and David and Solomon. Solomon's reign. They, they, there was a, this was a time where they experienced joy, but also significant disappointment. They were glad to be back home, but things were tough. It was tough financially. It was tough politically. And now, more than ever, they needed to live by faith and not by sight. And this is where Malachi's words come, to a people frustrated spiritually dead and needing correction. I I submit this to you, family. Does this sound like you? Has the disappointments and missed expectations of life gotten in the way of your communion with God? Has the difficulty of your situation created a new normal where tending to your relational intimacy with God is dying or no longer primary now that there's no personal, tangible prosperity or even your own preferred political climate or, or any other personal preference being met? Is your dependence on God based on how much independence you experience here on earth? What I'm asking there is, are you only content? 
Are you only pursuing him, only treasuring him when his gifts of grace you can see, you can feel? Is your soul only dependent on him when prosperity, freedom, and your appetites in life are satiated? Malachi argues primarily you don't have a proper view of God's love. Look at verse 2. The first solution Malachi gives to call Israel back is the love of God. I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you. Immediately, the opening words of this book are a reminder that God loves Israel. I have loved you. I love you. Have loved you. I mean, family, right there, that's a sermon in and of itself. Some of you need, the first thing you do when you wake up is to not run to your phones, not concern yourself with the day's duties or even focus on your current circumstances and situations. What you need, the first thought in your brain is that God has loved me. God has loved me so. But look at Israel's reply to God when he says, I have loved you. They say, how? How have you loved us? How have you loved us? We we can't see it. Let this show us, family, how easy it is to forget something so central, something so elementary. When we take our eyes off of his faithfulness and put them on our circumstances around us, how have you loved us? The Israels are like, you gave us the golden age and Saul and David and Solomon, and then you threw us in exile again, and then now we've been allowed back into our land, and the temple's been rebuilt, but it's kind of ghetto, and it's not glorious, and we're not remotely close to what we once were. We're, we're living in tents, so how? How have you loved us? What, what happened to the new Jerusalem Matt Haggai mentioned? Uh, Zechariah told us over and over about that day, that day, that day, great picnic, bells, horses. Where, where, where is all of that, God? How have you loved us? God says something that if you're not careful, you could misunderstand. Ending there at verse 2, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear it down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Be honest. How's that comforting? Right? I love you. How? Well, I loved you and I hated the other guy. How? What we need to understand, family, is that God's love And God's hate are not like ours. Proverbs says the ways of the Lord are higher than our own. So this idea of love and hate needs to be examined carefully lest we misunderstand. First off, God's love is not like 
that classic Alicia Keys song, I keep on falling in and out of love with you. Uh, No. (sighs) Every day we stray far and far from the Lord. Okay. Wrong crowd. This one. God's love is not a Hallmark movie. Where two people go ice skating and they slip and fall and then they're happily ever after forever and ever. That's not God's love. That's our version of love, but that's not God's version of love. God's hate is similar. It's not a temper tantrum or a feeling born out of injustice, vengeance, or just downright pettiness. This love-hate concept is a Hebrew way of talking about favor. In Genesis, when it says Jacob loved Rachel and hated Leah, it's not that Jacob felt the way we do when we say we hate someone. It's that he favored Rachel over Leah. And so what is God doing through Malachi? And so what God is doing through Malachi is taking the Israels, uh, the Israelites all the way back in history and saying, I didn't love Jacob because he was better than Esau. I favored him and not because of anything he's done. I mean, hopefully you know your Bibles. Jacob was a liar and a schemer. But God chose him because he chose him. In his sovereignty and his infinite wisdom and his perfect goodness, he chose. But something more true than that is that Jacob and Esau represented far more than their own personhoods. They represented a people. Jacob represented Israel and Esau, Edom. How have you loved us? God says, from long, 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 long ago, I chose you. Not because you would do something to earn that from me, but because I am good, I chose you. Some of y'all are still struggling with this, so I'm going to try and help you again, but don't shoot the messenger. I've found, and so this is me, I don't got the Barna research on this, this is not a universal truth here, but if I was a betting man, I'd bet on it. The only reason why we struggle with this concept of God choosing on no merit at all is because since our birth, every day of every hour of every minute, we have chosen based on merit. The car I drive, I got because I was having another baby. I chose this church because I feel comfortable here. I chose the clothes I'm wearing because I feel comfortable in them. I chose my wife, because she's fine. (laughs) Think about it. Every day we've chosen people, things, circumstances based on their merit. Every day. And so to recognize the fact that a personal relational God would choose not based on merit, that's difficult. 
That's difficult. God wants Israel to remember that from the beginning, he's loved them. From the garden to the ark, from the ark to the exodus, from the wilderness to the promised land, from the judges to the kings, from from the captivity to the prosperity, from one kingdom to two, back to one again, God has loved you. But that's for a people, a nation. I get that. What about you sitting here this morning? Well, for 11 weeks, we've said it, and I'll say it again. Remember. Remind yourself to look up before you look down on your phone. Remind yourself every morning and every evening, I am loved by God. This elementary truth is the easiest to forget. I'll give you a personal story. In 2018, I struggled terribly with mental health. I was having panic attacks. I was having anxiety uh, that would completely halt any and all things I could do in my life. I was having nightmares. I'm not normally a scared person. Uh, I was depressed. I was seeing things. And so I started to see a therapist. And one of the first exercises we did, first of many, one of the first exercises we did, he said, Close your eyes. Do this. You do this. I'm going to do it with you. Close your eyes. Take a deep breath in. And just say it. God loves me. God loves me. God has loved me. Four years later, I still practice this. Because... It's not about being loved or feeling loved. That's what we think it is. It's not about being loved or feeling loved. It's about the one who loves you. My wife loved me all through that season. It didn't change my anxiety. My children loved me all through that season. That didn't take away the depression. And though their love for me isn't perfect, it's pretty dang close. And yet that could not heal me. See, when you remember that you have been loved by God, that is a different kind of remembrance altogether. Y'all still sleepy? I'll try something else. I'm reading the Chronicles of Narnia to my children, and the other night we were reading A Horse and His Boy. The main character in this book is a slave boy named Shasta who was orphaned as an infant. Um, like, put him in a basket. He washed up on a fisherman's shore. The fisherman took him in, but didn't love him like a father, didn't treat him like a father, treated him like a slave. And so one night, a strange man riding on a horse comes late in the evening, and Shasta's sleeping outside in the stables. And uh, he sees this man come in, and he overhears the man barter with his adoptive father Uh, to sell him into slavery. And during that negotiation, the the horse begins to speak to Shasta. And he says, you're going to be sold. And if you're sold, it would be the worst thing for you. Take me and run away to a free land I know. And so that's what Shasta does. He takes, he gets up on the horse. He doesn't know how to ride a horse, so he falls down a bunch of times. And so the road already hurts. There's plenty of times throughout this journey where he's scared 
plenty of times throughout this journey where he's being hunted, plenty of times throughout this journey where he's feeling lonely, but all throughout the story, when he's scared, he strangely feels comforted. When he's lonely, he strangely feels not alone. When he's uh, uh, being hunted, he strangely uh, uh, notices that the, the, the enemies are, are pushed away and fought off, and he's going through this uh, uh, place, and he's terrified, and he's lost, and there's a really thick fog. The fog is so thick, he can't see the back of the horse's head in front of him. And he's riding, and all of a sudden, as he's holding the straps, he feels a breath on his hand, and he panics, and he gets scared, and he thinks it's a ghost. And then the fog clears, and he sees a lion, and he goes, oh, you startled me. You're going to kill me. This is, this is it. And the lion says, who do you think brought you to the shores of that fisherman? Who do you think brought you that horse to get on? Who do you think fought off the jackals when you were being hunted? Who do you think was keeping you company when you felt lonely? Who do you think was nudging you in the right direction when you feel lost? I have and I am. Family, when the circumstances around you are not your favorite, when trials and difficulties persist upon you, when waves of sorrow crashed against you, wake up each morning remembering I am loved by God. I have been loved by God, the one who saved me from my sin, who pulled me out of the snares of the enemy, the one who destroyed death's grip, the one who heals me when I'm sick and watches me when I sleep and comforts me when I'm alone and protects me when death tries to come sooner than it should. Our church, I wish as one of your pastors that you would know truly and deeply that God in heaven loves you. And whether you're four months old or 94 years old, you have a lifetime to remember and to recount those moments. I'm reminded of the words of the apostle in the eighth chapter of that famous book to the Romans. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We are sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Family, God loves you. He is for you. Nothing can separate you from his love. He has chosen you before the foundations of the earth so that you could be conformed into the image of his son. Hold fast to the love of God. That's fine. Don't get an amen on that, but God loves you. <laughs> Malachi moves on. He moves from the people in a broad sense to the priesthood, the clergy of Israel. It was their duty to give sacrifices on people's behalf for their sins so that they can receive atonement for their crimes against God. And God, because he is holy and perfect, is worthy of more honor than we can rightly give, created very strict rules about what constitutes as a sacrifice and what is worthy to be an offering. This was a system that God instituted so that he could draw close and draw his people near to him so that he can dwell among them 
so that they would grow in godliness and holiness, so that they could be clean and free from the very thing that separates them from him. It was a system of bringing together God and man. This system was a gift. It was there to serve them. And there lies the problem. Look at verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord. Oh, priests who despise my name. Malachi calls out the sins of the priest. He says, it's your duty, your privilege to bring honor and reverence to God on behalf of the people. Where is it? Where is the honor that God deserves? Where is the fear and reverence his glory demands? And the priests say in response at the end of verse 6, how have we despised your name? You ever, man, this is you, God, God help you in this moment. But you ever experienced someone that you, that has wounded you? And so you gracefully and gently bring it to them and then they play the victim card? How? How have I done that? How could you accuse me of doing that? I would never. You ever met those people? That is exactly what Israel is doing to God. You've despised my name. How could I have done that? God very clearly tells them something is wrong, and they say, what are you talking about? Now, before you think you might be off the hook, because he's talking to the clergy, I want you to know, family, that this is also for you. Because Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.9 that because God has loved us so, because he has chosen us, now we, all of us, are the royal priesthood of God. Because God drew us near, now we offer sacrifices with our lives. So we're not off the hook. Malachi has a word for us. Look at verse 7. How have we despised your name? And God says, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? Well, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. God is saying through Malachi, you're not giving me the best. You're not giving me your best. You're giving me the seconds. The worst parts of you, that is what you've offered to me. And what you give to me, says God, shows me how much you value all that I am to you. And then he says, would you give your governors what you offer to me? See, the Israelites are giving their best offerings to their earthly masters, to their political leaders to win favor with them. They figure that if they give the Persians the best, then the Persians will prosper them. All the promises God declared he would give them over all these years ago, the Israelites are now saying, I'm going to go find it in somewhere I can see. 
And God says, give your governors the sacrifices you offer me instead. This is for us, church. This is for us. In other words, what God is saying is some of you held your political positions higher than you've held your theological ones. Some of you respect and honor your officials higher than you respect and honor him. Some of you have held your earthly citizenship above your kingly one, your heavenly one. God is saying to Israel, give them what you give me. That's not what I deserve. He's saying you've put your faith in something you can see rather than something you can trust. No amen to that. Well, I'm just a messenger. He's saying you can't trust the Persians, but you can see them. So you give them what should go to me. You honor them because you think in them you'll find the salvation, the liberation, the prosperity, the hope of a better life. You think your captors are your liberators. Family, take a moment to consider, what do you give your best to? What do you give the best parts of you to? What does it say about you? Malachi teaches that what we give our best to shows what we've put our faith in. A lack of action reveals a lack of heart. And Malachi's commentary on this cuts deep. Malachi argues that we are behaving as though the God we cannot see is not a God at all to us. We are living as though he does not exist. It's all over chapter 2 and verses 1 through 9. Malachi provokes the priests into repentance. He tells them, honor God by listening to him, teaching his word faithfully, living it out in your life. God reminds them that he's made a covenant with them, a pact long ago, and he's kept his side of the deal, and Israel has not. They have corrupted it by not living according to it. They have turned away from the way of the Lord to live in such a way that bring glory and honor to themselves and family. You and I are guilty of this. We offer healthy animals to work. Healthy sacrifices to family, healthy sacrifices to friends, to career paths, to dreams of the future. And though none of those things are wicked in and of themselves, we give all of ourselves to them. We've given the best sacrifices we have, the mental capacity, the emotional bandwidth, the physical energy to the things that gain us horizontal favor. We've built our earthly kingdoms and given the scraps to God. Malachi says, if that's true, you are a functioning atheist. You live as though he's no God at all to you. Family, why why are our prayer lives in shambles? Our personal devotions are more focused on us than they are about God. We don't love our neighbors as ourselves. We love ourselves as ourselves, and we love our neighbors as they selves. These these words cut deep, but they don't cut flesh. They cut stone. Our sin has distorted our view of God and the honor 
he deserves. Our sin, in our sin, we present poor sacrifices to God, which actually expose us. And what we come to find out, what Israel is coming to find out, is that we have functioned as our own advocate, and it has horribly failed us. As time goes on, Israel would continue to fall. Their occupation would continue from dynasty to dynasty. They would experience like this brief 70-year freedom, which you could look in your history books. It wasn't all that free before ultimately being taken over by Rome. So the question must be asked, if we fix our actions and return to the covenant of Moses, if we remember the faithfulness and love of God towards us, Why do we, like the Israelites, still wander towards worshiping ourselves? Why do we still find ourselves seeking liberation from our captors? Why do we continue to steer towards our own glory? Right? It feels like a roller coaster. We're good, and then we're not, and then we're good again, and then we're not, and This is the problem with the law of Moses. The law of Moses is good for us. It guides us. It gives us boundaries for living a life unto God. But it cannot produce true and right change in us. We can only go a short while on our own before we end up playing and becoming our own advocates again. What is the cure? What do we need? What do we need to truly understand the breadth and depth of God's love? What do we need to truly and wholly live a life honoring the Lord in all that we do? What do we need, church? We need the power of God. We need the power of God, amen? The power of God is the only thing that can take us to that place. It's the power of God that teaches us his love. It's the power of God that, 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 that shows us, that teaches us his ways so that we may give all honor and glory to him. And this is what God says about himself. Look at these three verses in chapter one. Look at verse five. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Look at verse 11. From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And finally, look at verse 14. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. God is saying that one day his greatness will extend past the borders of Israel. His love will one day reach beyond just the Jews. It will cover the farthest east and the furthest west. He will receive the perfect unblemished sacrifice that his glory and his honor demands. And though he longed for his people to offer that sacrifice, the truth of it is we never could. God says, look back and remember the law of Moses. Look back and remember the law of Moses in chapter 4. He says it. 
Look to that which makes you holy, but also that which condemns you because you could never keep it fully. And then he says, in chapter four, I also want you to look forward. Look, look behind you and then look in front of you. Oh, I want you to look forward. I want you to fix your day on a, uh, fix your gaze on a coming day. Church, this is good news. God is saying, I want you to look ahead to hold fast to the promises I kept to you in the previous years. And just in case you forgot, I'm going to remind you, he's the true husband in Hosea. He's the true judge in Joel and Micah. He's the true king in Amos and Haggai. He's the true protector in Obadiah. He's the true compassionate one in Jonah. He's not just a king, but a warrior in Nahum and Zephaniah. He's the true good in Habakkuk and his kingdom's coming in Zechariah. And he says in chapter four of Malachi, you'll know when that person's here because I'm sending someone with the spirit of Elijah to pave the way for him. And who could stand before him on his day? He is coming as a refiner's fire and a fuller soap. He will be the perfect offering I require. He will be the unblemished sacrifice and his love will extend past the borders of Israel into Gentile regions and the end on into the world so that many more will be brought into the household of God. He will keep every law of Moses, every tradition and ritual so that when he dies, he will have died perfectly in your place and mine. And when his power raises him from the dead so that sin nor death has power over it, so shall it be for you. Oh, but that's not it. God says, I'm going to send another, a spirit to empower those who are living sacrifices. We won't have to be sheep to the slaughter no longer for what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing, not death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus. Stand with me and worship. 